Welcome to the JNNP podcast. I'm Sama Chaudhry, an autoimmune general neurologist where I practice at Brown University in Rhode Island. Today, I'm here with Dr. Laura McWhorter, author of an interesting article just published in the JNNP. What is brain fog? Tell me a little bit about yourself. It's really nice to meet you. Thank you for joining us on the JNNP podcast today. Thank you. So my name is Laura McWhorter. I'm a consultant neuropsychiatrist. Um, I work in Edinburgh. I'm currently working across general neuropsychiatry and traumatic brain injury. And now I've done my research background is in functional neurological disorders um, and specifically functional cognitive disorders. Um, and I'm also involved at the moment in a, a, a long COVID research project where we're, we're trying to sort of really do detailed clinical phenotypes of um, people with long COVID symptoms. That's amazing. We definitely need a lot more data on long COVID syndrome. Mm. Um, I have a lot of patients that I see for that. Yes. I love that you're doing work on that. I I think that listed under your qualifications, I think it's really interesting because you have a Bachelor of Medicine and a Bachelor of Surgery degrees. But before that, you had a a Bachelor in Music, from what I understand, at the University of York. I think that's quite interesting. Can you tell me a little bit more about your music background? Uh, Well, I, I was very into music when I was at secondary school, and it was a sort of a way up between uh, music or medicine um, and I went for music to start with and then and then back to medicine again but um, yeah I think it's good to have done something else before medicine that's a, a bit more unusual in the UK than it is in the states where I think everybody has done a bit of something else first but I'm um, not doing so much music at the moment. <laughs> yeah do you play any instruments? Um, so I play the clarinet and the piano but mainly at the moment just accompanying my children <laughs> on the piano and um, yeah no, nothing serious anymore really. <laughs> It's hard to find time. Well, let's dive into your article. I was really enthralled by the title of your article. It really struck me. Um, so the title of your article, um, which was recently published in the JNNP, is What is Brain Fog? And when I read that, I thought to myself, well, that's a great question. What is it? Yeah, and I think that's a question that we I came up against clinically because I've, I've heard people talk about brain fog way before COVID, a lot of people would say, oh, I've got this brain fog. And I, I sort of think I thought I knew what they meant by brain fog. And then increasingly, I started asking people, well, when you know, when you say brain fog, what's that like for you? What is, you know, what do you mean by that? And I started hearing, you know, lots of different things, a lot of different sorts of experiences. Um, and I thought it's interesting because I think we sometimes in medicine, we sort of align um, symptoms and what we think people are experiencing with kind of our own structures and ideas of what experiences can be like. But this is something that's come from people who, you know, it's come from patients. And I think with long COVID, there is kind of a, quite an explosion of people talking about their experiences in this kind of cognitive realm. And I thought, yeah, I just really wanted to answer that question. <laughs> um, and I also thought it it's really important for some of the other uh, COVID and post-COVID research that's going on, as well as in other areas, because this wasn't really, this was this paper isn't specifically about COVID or long COVID. Um, but, but I thought if we're saying that there are biological correlates of particular symptoms, we need to know what symptoms we are talking about and even whether they are all the same symptom, if that makes sense. No, it definitely makes sense. I think that's really interesting because I have so many patients and of course, working autoimmune neurology, I see mm. a lot of MS patients and they typically have described to me that they have brain fog. And I don't think I've really ever, you know, I've, I've kind of asked them to elaborate a little bit on that, but to have an exact definition of brain fog, I think it's a really interesting thing to investigate. Yeah. 
I think the other thing is it's really clinically helpful because if somebody says, I've got this awful brain fog, I mean, I think one of your first feelings is how awful and also, well, there's nothing I can do about that. Whereas if you really go into the the phenomena, the subjective phenomena, what is that? Then I think increasingly I've been able to see, you know, there are there are sometimes targets for treatment there. There is something, oh, actually, when you when you say that, that sounds a bit like this other thing which we could try this treatment for. So, yeah, so I went, we went at this topic with sort of curiosity and, and optimism. Yeah, I think that's great. Where do you see your research going with this? Um, what's the end goal with studying the question, what is brain fog? So again, I don't have any specific sort of ongoing brain fog research. I think one area that I've had lots of conversations with people about, but we've never quite, we haven't quite got it out um, off the ground, would be some kind of, or sort of fogometer, some kind of like uh, measure of the, the, a sort of dimensional measure of, of these kind of subjective um, cognitive fatigue type experiences. And just, you know, to see, if, because I think that would be helpful for, not only in these kind of post-COVID illnesses and functional disorders, but also in neuroinflammatory conditions, autoimmune conditions, as a kind of outcome measure, actually, our treatments, what are they doing to the different components of these experiences? So somebody, they say they have brain fog, but actually they've got a little bit of fatigue, they've got some inattention, um, and they're a little bit depressed. What, what are the treatments doing to the different components of that? So I think that would be one interesting area for maybe me or maybe somebody else to do would be to look at um, how, how we measure these things a bit better. My own research at the moment, so we're um, finishing up recruitment for our long COVID study. And again, we're just looking in more clinical detail. There's a huge amount of data about post-COVID, but th- not very much good description. And I think it makes it difficult to make sense of these huge data sets. So for example, we know that after COVID, people perform a little bit worse on psychometric tests, but we don't actually know why that is. There's so many reasons that that could be. And I think, so I think our study is going to be relatively small, but it's just going to hope to describe you know, whether it's one or several clinical phenotypes that fall under this sort of long COVID syndromic heading. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And you mentioned long COVID syndrome being an example of a population where you could see brain fog. What other type of patient populations have you worked with where they've described brain fog? So using the term brain fog, I think previously, so chronic pain syndromes, widespread chronic pain, fibromyalgia type presentations. And I think that that is part of the vocabulary within fibromyalgia communities. They, they've talked about fibro fog, brain fog, um, psychiatric disorders to some extent, sleep disorders, obstructive sleep apnea, and that sort of thing. Yeah, I think it is. But the term is being, it sort of entered vocabulary now. People use it quite frequently. And I think that's why we really need to uh, look at it a bit, bit more carefully. Yeah, I agree. And then can you tell me a little bit about your study? Like, tell me about the methods. How did you put this together exactly? So this brain fog study. So w- what we did was it, there was quite a list. We're, none of us particularly technologically minded, so it was quite a it was quite a leap to start using. Um, we, we used Python code, relatively simple code to um, get data off Reddit. Uh, are you familiar with Reddit? Um, I am. I thought it was so interesting that you used a social media platform for research and that you use Reddit. That that was intriguing to me. 
Yeah. So um, I have to say, I, I wasn't particularly familiar with Reddit. I think I'm a little bit old. <laughs> it's got quite a young demographic, although it's increasingly large and it's absolutely huge. Millions of people accessing Reddit um, all the time. It's quite uh, easy to access. It's quite easy to get the data from. It's, it's quite sort of an, an pretty anonymous. Obviously, we have to be careful to make sure that what we're doing is anonymous. Uh, and yeah, it's interesting because people speak in great detail about their experiences um, in these different subreddits. So there's sort of sub fora, little groups where, um, so there, there would be long COVID groups, there would be, you know, other, other sorts of groups. Um, we were interested to look at social media rather than, you know, any kind of, information that's collected in a clinical setting, because I think we feel that people speak more candidly, um, uh, you know, when they're speaking to peers and um, looking for support. And it's it's that kind of unfiltered, unfiltered data of what, what people's experiences are. So we, we wrote our code, we, um, we scraped this data of uh, brain fog posts over a set period of time. Um, and then there was quite a lot of filtering because some of them were, uh, weren't really describing experiences or symptoms. Um, and we found just over 700 posts that did fit our criteria. And we looked at them in detail and we sort of broke them down first by uh, what the subreddit they were in. So what you know, what what kind of group were they discussing this with? Um, we looked at um, sort of causal attribution. So what people thought their brain fog was caused by or what they said that their brain fog was caused by. Um, and then we, we looked at the ones where there were descriptions of an experience. So somebody who would say, my brain fog is like this, or I have terrible brain fog, this is what happens. Um, and then we, what we did is we tried to, uh, you know, by consensus as a group, agree what actually, how did that map onto our doctory <laughs> definitions of particular recognised phenomena. And what we found was that there are definitely overlaps so we did a nice Venn diagram that you can see in the paper. Um, and, and that shows you kind of where the main overlaps are and what the biggest experiences are. So forget forgetfulness, um, inattentive cognitive lapses, that kind of going into a room, forgetting what you've gone in there for. Um, and then smaller groups, which did overlap, were um, communication difficulties. So sometimes you know, word finding difficulties. Um, some people described a stutter, a stammer. Some people described just this real sense of effort and struggle. Um, some people, it really seemed to have quite a sort of physical component. So there was a, a fullness in the head or a grogginess, sometimes dizziness, disequilibrium, headache, uh, kind of some quite migranous sounding experiences. Um, there was a clear group describing dissociation. So experiences of depersonalization, derealization, feeling separate from things. Another group that were just really seemed to be describing fatigue. And then a small number that is really quite vivid, I was quite struck by them, descriptions of um, sort of emotional components to their brain fog. So there was an anhedonia, a loss of emotional connection, a loss of feeling and drive, loss of enjoyment. I think we were, I was surprised by the breadth of experiences that were falling under this brain fog heading. Um, and also just really, I'm always really struck when you, it's a bit like when you allow a patient to speak freely for a good length of time by the, you know, really good descriptions that people can give you of these experiences that we kind of are pigeonholing into. We might say a subjective cognitive impairment or, or this patient's just tired. So, you know, um, and just how, how, you know, patients probably often are a bit better than us at, at describing what's going on for them. Yeah, I love that you use the social media platform because like you said, it's kind of a way 
where we can get feedback from patients without interrupting them. I think there was one yes. study that said that, you know, as, as healthcare providers, we may interrupt a patient every 10 seconds, if not more. Yes. Um, yeah. So this is a more open way, a safer way to maybe get their opinions about what their subjective brain fog is in terms of a description. And so from what I understand from what you guys did is you didn't post, um, you know, a question. Instead, you used a certain software to search descriptions of brain fog on Reddit and then these subfolders on Reddit known as um, subreddits. Is that right? Yes. Yes, we did. So just a, a search of every time brain fog, uh, in quotes, was mentioned on Reddit in, in that particular length of time, which I'm sure I just have to remind myself, it was between 27th of October and 3rd November 21. Mm -hmm. uh, probably be interesting to repeat, see if it's changed <laughs> a couple of years later. But yeah, so, so we were just looking for that every time that was mentioned. Interesting. And so from what you're describing, it seems like people use different descriptors of, of brain fog. They described it, as you said, periods of forgetfulness, poor concentration, distractibility, inattention, just feeling like they're dissociated? Yeah, I would say it's not so much that they're using different descriptors of the same thing. I would say that they're using the, the same label for lots of different things. So people are saying brain fog, but somebody, some person saying brain fog uh, might be having horrible dissociative experiences, might be feeling depersonalized a lot of the time. Another person with brain fog might have a migraine, you know. So I think, I think it's a, I just think it's a, it's kind of a flag for ask more questions um, because you might find something that you, you, I think we make assumptions um, about some particular types of experience and whether that's because we think that this is like another patient who said brain fog or whether it's because just it's what we imagine feeling foggy would be like um, and I think if somebody says I've got terrible brain fog just think it's worth saying but what what's that like because they might say what you expect but they might say something quite different. You bring up a really interesting point. I don't think I've ever really thought about that in detail, that someone could be describing brain fog, but instead their description may meet more of a headache syndrome, like a migraine, and that could be very well treatable. So what you're, what you're saying is that their personal descriptions about what they mean with brain fog is really important because we could hone in on that and, and potentially could help with treatment. Yes, absolutely. I just think I, I think if you look a bit harder, you instead of find, it's a bit like instead of seeing a fog, you start to see shapes and you start to say, oh, actually, this is familiar. This is something that I have encountered somewhere else. But it does mean asking that question. And I think, I mean, in psychiatry, we, we have really the luxury of time and patients will, you know, often elaborate. We can allow them to elaborate a bit more. But I think in other specialties and general practice and neurology, you're a bit more pressured. Um, and it probably is saying, well, what's your brain fog like? Because there are different types of brain fog sorts of thing. Mm -hmm. And then did you notice any particular diagnosis with more common descriptions in terms of how they describe their brain fog? Like in fibromyalgia, where people describing their brain fog, you know, in one particular way versus people with long COVID syndrome, or did it not really matter? I don't, I don't think it really matters. And I think it's probably, you know, there's a degree of overlap between patients. And I think there, you know, there, there are differences as well. Um, I mean, obviously this, this study didn't look at 
diagnosis. It looked it looked at people's what they attributed their brain fog to, but there's no you know we don't have any clinical information on whether those those are the correct diagnoses yeah no I, I don't think we noticed from from this kind of limited data set any particular patterns it, it wasn't that brain fog covid brain fog is all is all one particular type of experience and fibromyalgia brain fog is another i think you know there is likely to be similar or or, or different and then in 2021 when you did this study what were people attributing their brain fog to? Was there one syndrome that was more popular that people thought that they had brain fog due to, like medications, COVID? What did you find? Yeah, so 570 of the 70 posts clearly stated, I think this is the cause of my brain fog. They gave, they gave a sort of causal attribution, as we called it. And in 50% of cases, that was some kind of illness or disease. Only 50%. I mean, that's actually a lot of people, there were, there are various other things that sort of surprised us, um, sort of sexual related things, diet uh, related to menstruation and things. But yeah, d- disease about 50%. Um, and of those, COVID-19 was, was one of the frequently mentioned ones. Other ones, psychiatric illnesses, um, autoimmune disorders, uh, ADHD, other neurodevelopmental conditions, um, and, and just a really, you know, a real ragbag of all sorts of other things. Um, some of them related it to medications or um, prescribed and non-prescribed drugs, in, in fact, recreational drug withdrawal, a whole, a whole range of things, really, re- really interesting. And also, I think quite, it's kind of food for thought when, again, when we're reading research suggesting, oh, we have found the, the spike protein which causes brain fog. Um, you're, you know, we found the, the mechanism. Well, actually, it, this is also being experienced by people who have stopped smoking last week or, you know, or uh, who are pregnant or um, have ADHD. Is it how likely is it that there's a single unified mechanism that's causing this in, in all of these people. So I, th- I think it's important to recognise that this has been around for a long time. Um, it's probably very uh, a very varied kind of range of experiences with some overlaps. But this is not something that we're going to suddenly find a, a tablet for. It's something that requires investigation, formulation, you know, finding the shapes in the fog, I guess. That's a great description. And then you had mentioned that there were a couple things that surprised you in this study. What was the most surprising thing that you came across? I guess slightly horrifyingly was the frequency of this um, relation to uh, abstention from masturbation, which we was really weren't really weren't looking for and weren't expecting. Uh, the medical student who did the analysis came back to me with the with the data, and I thought, "Oh my goodness, what have I sent this student into?" So, so that was a surprise because that's something that it seemed kind of medieval <laughs> um, in terms of some of the, and and really some quite surprising beliefs around that. And, and it's just, I mean, Reddit is just really an interesting place to place to visit. So, so I, th- I guess that surprised me. Um, I think just the, just the breadth and also the really nice descriptions. I think we have a table or some text boxes in the paper with some of the text from these descriptions. So, you know, really good description of dissociation. Somebody saying, oh, my entire life seems off as if I'm in a constant state of deja vu. Somebody saying that they constantly feel poisoned and drunk and like their brain is poisoned. Really vivid descriptions of very different things. Um, so, yeah, it was a really n- nice, really interesting story study 
we all really enjoyed it. And it, I think I've taken a lot from it from a, clin- from a clinical practice as well. I think I have too, particularly with talking to you today and with reading the article, I really like that you included patients' descriptions in verbatim, as you mentioned, mm. in the article, mm. because we see these patients and I think it gives me a better idea of really what to ask them to delve into this a little bit deeper and what um, kinds of responses I can expect to get. But I agree, um, some of the responses that you obtained were a little bit surprising, I guess. And I think that's interesting. One question I had is, you know, I don't know a lot of studies that are done using social media platforms. I think this is probably becoming more common nowadays. I think it's interesting that you chose Reddit. So why Reddit over other social media platforms like Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram? Honestly, partly for ease. So we have an expert on our authorship, Anna Couturier, who has done lots of research in the area of um, stem cells on the internet and social media um, and how people are influenced by things that they find, find on the internet. So she was kind of our expert. Twitter, obviously, you're limited by the character limit. Um, I think it's got a bit longer, but there's only so much vivid description that you can fit into that character limit. Facebook, the issue is that all the data is in closed private groups, I think, and quite difficult to access generally. So Reddit was pretty, it's pretty easy to get lots of data and, you know, straightforward and uh, the, there are no kind of closed uh, or groups. So um yeah, so kind of practical reasons, but also that length is, you know, the longer longer entries people can write. And I guess you have to be, I think it is really interesting and I'd be interested to do more of this sort of research. I think looking at, there are a few areas where we make assumptions about what our patients are experiencing and what they think about things. I think there are other areas about risk, clinical risk and, um, you know, what they understand by prognosis and, and things like that. And I think it would be that would, there are lots of interesting areas that you could look at uh, what people are really thinking and get a bit of a better picture. But I think we also have to be mindful that people are using Reddit for support. They're using it sometimes because they're struggling and they're not putting their data on there with the intention that we will dig around. So I think you do have to be respectful, um, very careful about how you how you sort of anonymize things. And obviously we took a lot of advice from um, Anna, our co-author, about how to kind of how, how to do that all quite carefully. Mm-hmm. What kinds of advice did she give you about that? The main thing is making sure that we don't um, identify anybody. Um, and that would include by putting anything that is just very super specific, you know what I mean? That something somebody might um, recognize. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, if you needed to summarize this article for people that were listening, um, what do you think would be the main take-home points that you would want people to take away from this article? Um, I would want them to take away that uh, brain fog is, uh, as a term, is not new. It's been around for a long time. And that when people say that they have brain fog, it's worth asking a little bit more because our study found that brain fog can be used to describe lots of different sorts of experiences that might indicate different sorts of underlying pathology and therefore different treatments. Um, and I just think we need to stay stay curious when we're dealing with these sorts of experiences. Yeah, that's a great point. And then are there any treatments for brain fog that you know of, in your opinion? So again, I think it's really back to, well, what is this brain fog? So if you if your brain fog is 
because you have a horrible, untreated migraine, then migraine prophylaxis, you know, the, the stuff that we already know about. If you have a, a really bad functional neurological disorder um, and you have, you know, just a huge burden of, of physical symptoms, chronic pain, then I guess treating that as a primary, whether physiotherapy or, you know, whatever, is going to be the main thing to improve your cognitive symptoms. You know, if you're having a lot of depersonalization or if your mood is, say, say if your mood is very low and you've got total anhedonia, then antidepressants will be the right, you know, I think it really depends on on a clinical formulation and figuring out what that, what's at the root of that. Yeah, you're right. And this definitely makes me reflect on when I talk to patients about brain fog, just having them break down their description better, because yeah. based on what they're describing, we could potentially treat them. Um, would you routinely recommend, like if they're suggesting that they're having memory impairment or, or things like that, would you recommend something like a neuropsychological evaluation for, for cognition? Or So in terms of doing lots of neuropsychological tests, it would very much depend. I have seen the occasional patient with with brain fog who has turned out to have a neurodegenerative disease, I'd say very, very rarely. Um, you know, that, that that's a different case. I think in patients who have are very, very troubled by cognitive symptoms and yet who are functioning at a reasonably good level, I find doing lots of neuropsychological tests beyond what I can kind of do in clinic can be a bit unhelpful, to be honest, because, the, you know, they can underperform if you're, you know, if you're very anxious, if you're very symptomatic in other ways, um, you can you can not do so well. And you tend to just get lots of results back that they're sort of neither reassuring nor um, kind of informative. They're just, you know, a, a scatter of deficits and we're not sure what's what. So I would tend not to kind of subject patients to huge amounts of neuropsychological testing, except in particular circumstances. I think if if we think, so in some cases, um, I think brain fog, where that is the primary complaint, it can be a manifestation of a functional cognitive disorder. Um, and in those cases, I think the real strengths of our neuropsychology colleagues are in, in treatment. I think they've got a lot to bring to, um, you know, helping patients to formulate that, to contextualise um, how they're performing cognitively um, and to help them to kind of manage the strategies that you're, they're using, which in some cases can be a bit unhelpful and whether there's any avoidance presence. So so I think neuropsychology, I think great for treatment. I think we don't always get a huge amount of extra value from doing loads and loads of tests unless we think there's something funny going on, something you know unusual or um, neurodegenerative. That's helpful. Yeah, so I think really the key take home here is to focus on what patients mean by brain fog and seeing where we can go from there rather than just doing a standard approach like referring everybody for a neuropsychological evaluation because that just may not be appropriate. Yeah, I think in some cases it can be quite distressing and then it takes a long time and then at the end of the day you're back in clinic and you've got this report and you think, actually I don't really know if I'm any further forward here um, and the patient feels worse. So, When it comes to some symptoms of post-COVID brain fog, do you think it's just time? For people to get better? Yeah, so I mean, my experience of patients that I'm following up with post-COVID syndrome is that the, the vast majority are, are getting better with time. Um, so I would be, you know, I'd be optimistic. I think obviously my feeling is that it is again a heterogeneous condition. There are different subtypes of, of things going on here which are more or less related to the initial COVID infection. Um, so it's, you know, I think it is quite variable, mm -hmm. but I think the vast majority, the courses of improvement. 
Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if that's your experience. Yeah, I, I think so too with, with uh, you know, the patients I've seen. Sometimes it's just time. And I think it's difficult telling yeah. patients that, you know, they want treatment, they yeah. want answers. Um, and as a medical community, maybe we're just not there yet. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then any hints about what the mechanism of what could be causing brain fog, particularly in long COVID syndrome? I think there's going to be a whole load of different things. Um, certainly in my long COVID clinic, I've seen I've seen a lot of obstructive sleep apnea. I've seen some relatively severe depression. Um, I've seen kind of the sort of post-viral fatigue syndromes that we were familiar with even prior to COVID. Um, and, you know, just a, a really long list of things. There are some common features. Um, and I think that of the patients that I've seen, uh, and I'm not sure how representative they are of the whole, um, there, there are people who do struggle with being uh, off their normal level of performance and and do find it quite difficult to to manage that you know waiting for things to get better but um yeah i I hope as we'll finish our long covid study soon and get get to write that up and (laughs) um and that that should contain certainly a description of our cohort Mm -hmm. yeah and i think from what i'm getting from you is mechanistically we just don't know yeah and i think the, the more I look, the, the the less likely I think it is that there's going to be a single unified mechanism. There's probably a group of similar things, but I, I don't think it's going to be a very straightforward because when you see the the range of clinical experience, the clinical presentations, I, I think how could these all be explained by this by the same thing um, and the different sorts of trajectories as well. So, but it's a it's a really interesting area. It really is. I think your article was pretty amazing. I love that you tackled this very challenging subject of what is brain fog. And it's really made me think about my own practice a little bit and and what I can do to parse that out in patients more. So thank you so much for that. And thank you very much for inviting me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please consider leaving us a rating and review on the JNNP podcast page. You can find a link to this in the description of the podcast. You can also subscribe to our podcast on your preferred platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. With that said, that's all we have for today. See you soon.